This is a long game and you need to decide why you're coming into this game. And if you're coming into this game to make money, like turn around and run, (laughs) you can make an enormous amount of money in this business. I've been extremely lucky to have done that. But you're setting yourself up for mental failure if that's why you're coming into this business. So it's a long game. Be patient. And you've got to remember why you're here, which is to write books. Because all of the other stuff, the business and the marketing, can take up so much of your time. But if you're not producing, if you're not writing that next book, then you're falling behind. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Alessandra Torrey. New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal best-selling author. Alessandra Torrey has written over 23 novels, including multiple New York Times bestsellers. Her first book, Blindfolded Innocence, was a breakout hit, rising to the top of the ebook charts on Amazon, where it attracted the interest of major publishing houses. As a result, Alessandra signed her first six-figure print deal, this one with Harlequin HQN. And less than 12 months later, Tori signed a second six-figure deal, this time with Red Hook Hatchet, for her Deanna Madden series and erotic suspense trilogy. In 2017, her New York Times bestseller, Hollywood Dirt, was released as a full-length film by Passion Flicks. Alessandra's novels have been translated in 18 languages and are distributed in over 30 countries. Alessandra is also the creator of Alessandra Torrey Inc., an author's community and online school with over 20,000 members. In addition, she is the founder of InkersCon, an annual author's conference. As a self-publishing advocate, Alessandra speaks frequently to universities, conventions, and author groups, and has been featured in such publications as L and LUK, as well as a guest blogger for the Huffington Post, and RT book reviews. She is also the bedroom blogger for Cosmopolitan.com. In 2019, Alessandra co-founded Authors AI, a company that uses artificial intelligence to help authors with their development and editing process. In November of 2020, Authors AI launched Binge Books, an online community that helps readers discover their next great novel. Listen in for some great takeaways about how Alessandra has had such a great success as an author and how she is paying it forward to this great community by helping authors everywhere. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I am back with Alessandra Torrey, New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal bestselling author. It's a pleasure to have you here today, Alessandra. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Larry. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So listen, I know a little bit about you and I want our audience to learn a lot more about you from our time together today. Can you share with our audience a bit about your journey to becoming a New York Times bestselling author, Alessandra Torrey? How'd you get here? Absolutely. It's an interesting story, but it can get long, so I'll try to keep it short. 
10 years ago, I was in between jobs. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And it was 2012. It was the dawn of self-publishing was in its infancy. And I was reading an article about E.L. James, who was making a million dollars a day. Big difference with Fifty Shades of Grey. It was one of those things. It was like, gosh, if I could make 1% of what E.L. James makes, I'd be set for life. And I was a reader. That's been my passion. I was been a bookworm my whole life. And it's one of those things. I love to complain about books. My husband is always like, well, if you think you could do such a great job, you should write your own book. <laughs> and so I was like, I didn't have anything to do. I was, like I said, between jobs. And so I sat down and I wrote a book. I wrote a novel and I self-published it. And it didn't do much. I was selling three to five copies a day. But with three to five copies a day, I was making 10, 15, sometimes $20 a day. And I thought if I wrote 10 books, I wouldn't have to go back to work again. This could be my new job. And I wrote my first book so easily that I thought I could whip out nine more. So right about when that thought process started happening, my book exploded and just shot up the charts. Again, it was self-published, but it was on Kindle. And I got where I was selling thousands of copies a day. And agents and publishers were emailing me. And suddenly I had an agent. Suddenly I had a six-figure print deal. And at that point, it was like, okay, I guess I'm not going back to work. Like, this is my new work. And that was the summer of 2012. So now, 10 years later, I have almost 30 books written. I am traditionally and self-published still. My greatest success has always been with my self-published books. And in addition to writing, I am the CEO of a tech startup that uses artificial intelligence to help authors in their writing process. And I run a conference for authors. So that's my day to day. Amazing. So I can't imagine you would think you are where you are today when you started and wrote that first book back in 2012, huh? Absolutely not. But part of I think I was so lost in the beginning and that really actually helped me out a lot later on because I can understand where new authors are coming from. Even though I now have been here so long, there's still so much to learn. So I can empathize with that. So I have to ask you something. Yale James has had such an impact on a lot of people, I think. There are a number of folks that we've been introduced to over the years, like you, who found inspiration and found an interest because they were a reader and saw what she had done in her space. Can you speak for a moment about what do you think the impact she has had on the genre and authors in general? Erica is an amazing woman. I interviewed her recently, and she's just lovely. She really is. And it is often understated the impact that she had. And it was in multiple areas. One was self-publishing. I mean, technically, she did self-publish with a small press, but it was with a very small press. She might as well have self-published on her own that first book, then it became huge. But more importantly, she was responsible for a rebirth in the romance genre. So every decade, there's an author, right? Or every three to four years, Twilight did it, Harry Potter did it, where it brings just millions of people to reading who maybe only read in high school and only read assigned reading, and they think that they hate reading, and then they read something, they're like, oh, wow, like, this is why people get so excited about books. So there was this huge amount of women and men who had never read romance novels. I'll tell you, I was the biggest snob about romance novels on the planet. I hated the thought of a romance novel. But she introduced just millions and millions of women and men to romance novels and also introduced us to this idea that there could be explicit content in mainstream novels and that that was okay. So in addition to, of course, just the swell of readers that she brought, she also sparked so many conversations. I mean, 
prior to that, you would never walk in a coffee shop and hear two women discussing the type of things that became commonplace after Fifty Shades of Grey just exploded. Quite the impact. So one of the things I've heard you speak about is the importance of the book description. That's something that you impress upon people. Can you share with our listeners how that lesson came to be and why that's so important and the emphasis there? Absolutely. So it's I left out that story in my success story, but when you have a book or a product on Amazon, there is the description, which is one of the most important things. You have the photo, which for us is the book cover, and then you have the description. And that description is really the book cover catches their attention and causes them to click. And then the description is what makes them decide, yes, this is a book I want to purchase or no, it's not. So for me, with my very first book, which was called Blindfolded Innocence, my cover was very click-worthy. I have the distinction of being the first cover banned on Amazon. Amazon didn't even have a banning process prior to my book, but it was very scandalous and it was getting a ton of clicks. I didn't know that. Me sitting in my living room in Florida had no idea. I was seeing sales, but a minor amount of sales. But my cover was getting clicked on like crazy. No one was then buying the book because they were reading my description and something about that description didn't appeal to them. So I was happy with my three, five, 10 sales a day. And again, doing this calculation like, oh, if I wrote 10 books, it'd be great. And then I was leaving on a trip and I said, before I go, I think I'll just rewrite my book description. It was just kind of a whim. I wrote a new version. To this day, I cannot tell you what it was about that new version versus the old version. They felt very similar to me. But I wrote a new version, popped it up on Amazon, and we left. And by the time I got to Memphis, we were going to Memphis for the weekend, I had sold like 100 copies, which was crazy. And then by the time I went to bed that night, I had sold 400 copies. And that was when just my sales took off. And it taught me that people, like I said, were clicking on that cover, but then getting turned off by a portion of my sales page. And making that one change, when, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that one change really launched my entire career. And it was good, but I really don't want to write nine more books. And I could have just moved on with my life. But I made that one change, that one 15 minutes, and then I had suddenly hundreds of thousands of dollars and contracts and fans and success. And so I tell new authors or experienced authors all the time, you could just have one piece of your puzzle that isn't fitting right. And that one piece might be reviews, it might be pricing, it might be distribution, but typically it's the cover or it's the book description. And one of those two things or it's a story, which is a bit much harder thing to fix. But one of those two things is typically broken if people are visiting your book and then they're not buying. And thank goodness for me, I found that piece and I fixed it. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, words matter, right? Yeah. Especially in our business, right? You had the data that said people were clicking and then they weren't going through with the sales. So it leads you to believe that there was something drawing their attention there, but not keeping them long enough in order to make that purchase. So that was a great spot on your part. And I think the lesson here is whether you're a writer or entrepreneur, if something's not working, rather than ditching it all together, take a look at it and see if you could tweak it. It may take one or two. And that's why from a marketing perspective, a lot of folks talk about A-B testing, right? testing two different descriptions, see if one sells more than the other in order to test things over time. And I think that's a great testament to what you did. And it's great that it worked out. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't cost any money. Like you can write a new description, put it up there. Like you said, try it for a week. 
your sales ranks either going to go up or it's going to go down, like, or it's going to stay the same, but typically it's going to go up or down. And so it makes your decision real easy. Like I just keep it or I change it back. Agreed. So what led you to decide to become a hybrid author? What was your motivation there? Well, when that book exploded and I was getting agents and publishers reaching out, my initial thought was I really wasn't interested in them. For so many authors, like their dream is to be traditionally published, but that was never my dream in part because being an author was never like a thought in my head. So I didn't know enough to be dreaming about things. But it was like, I just want my book to be read. That was really the thing. And being in bookstores didn't matter to me as much. And I was making a lot of money. So it was kind of like, well, why do I need to bring a publisher in and go from making 100% of the profit to 25% of the profit or 10% of the profit in terms of paperbacks? So I was really kind of resistant against the idea of a publisher and and an agent. And my agent, who I ended up signing up with, who I'm still with to this day, she said, it doesn't make sense to not know what's out there, right? Like if you want to turn down the offer, but let's at least get you an offer and then you can make that decision. And so for me with my first publisher, which was Harlequin, there was so much money. I was making a lot of money, but when I was getting multiple six figures, it gave me enough ground that I could be like, okay, like I'm going to stop looking for my next career. This is my next career. And I could devote full time to it and I could have confidence. And even if that publishing deal ended up being a horrible decision for me, at least I have this chunk of money, guaranteed money. And to be honest, that publishing deal was a mistake for me to make in terms of my longevity and in terms of Harlequin now owning the first two books in my series and that sort of thing. But at the same time, I don't regret that decision because it did, like I said, give me a nice amount of money and this financial security where I could really dive into this career. And then I ended up getting self-publishing more books. And then I got another publisher. And then I hit the New York Times list with a self-published book and then another list. And then I started turning down deals. I'd be getting publishing deals and I would turn them down just because they couldn't compete. They would offer me an advance of what I was making in a week self-publishing. And so I didn't take another publishing deal for almost six or seven years. And then recently, I say recently, maybe two years ago, I took one with an Amazon imprint. So Amazon now has their own publishing imprints. And so Thomas and Mercer is their suspense line. I really wanted to move into suspense and signed a two book deal with them. Now I've signed another two book deal with them. And those books have exploded. So I'm very, very happy with that deal. But I still at heart will always feel I'm always self-published author. Besides the monetary aspect of things, what do you see the benefit of self-publishing versus having a large publisher? We understand the financial end of things. You explained it very succinctly. What are the other benefits of it outside of the financial aspects of things to be self-publishing versus a large publisher? Control is the number one benefit to self-publishing. Self-published authors are much more nimble. We can make decisions immediately and put them into place within hours. Traditional publishers, like it's a committee, right? (laughs) Or someone has to ask someone who has to ask someone, and then they hem and haw over it for two or three weeks. And by the time that's happen like this trend has passed. But with my self published books, if something isn't working, I can redo the cover and have it up. My traditionally published books have not had covers changed in years, it will soon be decades. If I want to get together with three or four authors and us do an Easter sale and mark our first 
book in the series for 99 cents, we can all get together and cross promote that and do that. If there's an advertising opportunity, we can do that. I'll invest money in my self-published books because I can get that immediate ROI. The numbers don't work with my traditionally published books, which means I put less effort behind them. But mainly it's the control. It's being able to control every aspect of production and packaging and marketing and writing and knowing that I own that destiny and I own that book forever. But the benefits used to be, but then with a traditionally published author you had a, or publisher, you had all these benefits and those benefits just aren't there anymore. The print market is so much less than it used to be. And unless you're a big household name, that's who those traditional print readers They're going after the John Grisham and the Nora Roberts book, right? Like it's very rare that you see an indie name or a debut author. You have them, but they're unicorns, right? They're not the norm. So they're not bringing as much to the table as to overcome. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of the benefits. Having that control gives you a lot more opportunities. And then with putting money behind it, for example, if it's a published book, you're hoping the publisher's doing that for you, right? Because they have a lot of money on the line and a lot at stake. So hopefully they're putting those marketing efforts behind it. You really shouldn't have to, I get on the self-publishing side. So one of the things that I found interesting is when you decided to release your romance suspense books, you did so under a different pen name, A.R. Tory. Can you explain what the thought process there is as an author utilizing a different pen name for those genre? Absolutely. And my stance on pen names has changed over the years. Initially, I launched A.R. Tory. It was a publisher demand. (laughs) Hachette said they bought two books for me, ended up three books for me. And they said, Alessandra is too sexy. We want to separate your suspense books, even though they do have sexual content and we want to separate them. So we want to put them under A.R. Tory. And I didn't know any better. I was a new author and I said, sure, whatever. So we picked A.R. Tory. Later, I would really hate that decision because keeping up with two pen names is twice as much work, right? And a lot of my audience was the same, but they wouldn't know. Like some of them to this day are unaware that I have these A.R. Tory books out. So for a long time, my advice to any author was like, do not have a second pen name author. Readers are smart. They can tell the difference between a romantic suspense and a romance or a sci-fi thriller and a YA contemporary. Like if you are doing your job with packaging and cover and, and book description, you don't need a different pen name. But now the new thought is... It's the authors that are really succeeding are picking a lane and they're staying in it. And it is a very narrow and well-defined lane. And I was really bad about this for the first eight years of my career where I wrote whatever I felt like writing. And the authors that really are making money and succeeding are they're finding their niche and then they're writing that exact type of book over and over and over again. So that when someone sees their name, they know exactly what they're getting, right? And it's giving them that confidence. And so now I'm glad that I have two pen names and the new books I've written have been under A.R. Tory, and I do a much better job of keeping those two brands distinct. But that was the origin of that second pen name and my emotions emotional roller coaster towards it ever since. Interesting. And it's interesting that you kind of flip-flopped on your thought process behind it, originally not thinking it was a great idea and now thinking that it's you're benefiting from it. So that's interesting. And I think you have a lot of qualities of entrepreneur because you're thinking in that direction in terms of not being rigid and not being inflexible. And I think as an author or a business owner or whomever, you have to have that flexibility to be able to shift as time changes. So that's excellent. So you talked about new authors a little bit and how you were a new author and changed your thought process on some things. What was the best 
piece of advice that you ever received personally as a new author? Unfortunately, when I was a new author, I received very little to no advice because when I was a new author, we didn't have communities like we had now. So I wasn't meeting any other authors. So I really felt like I was in this lifeboat by myself. What I used to say is I would figure out things by just blindly walking in one direction until I hit a wall. And then I would just turn and I'd just walk in another direction until I hit a wall. And that was like my marketing and production and business strategy for several years was just figuring it out. And I lost a lot of money during that process by putting money where it didn't belong. So it wasn't until I really found a community. And I mean, Facebook has been an incredible job of bringing authors together and author groups on Facebook are fantastic. But initially, I didn't have any advice. My best piece of advice for new authors is that this is a long game. And you need to decide why you're coming into this game. And if you're coming into this game to make money, like turn around and run. (laughs) If you are a fiction author that are coming into this game to make money, if you're a nonfiction author, there are plenty of reasons why writing a book makes a difference, even if it doesn't make money as part of your business portfolio. But if you're a nonfiction author, you really need to come into this game because you love to write and because you want to share stories. And if you never make a dime, that's okay. And you'll still be happy. You can make an enormous amount of money in this business. I've been extremely lucky to have done that. But you're setting yourself up for mental failure if that's why you're coming into this business. So it's a long game. Be patient. And you've got to remember why you're here, which is to write books. Because all of the other stuff, the business and the marketing can take up so much of your time. But if you're not producing, if you're not writing that next book, then you're falling behind. Yeah, I think Sawyer Bennett, we had her on the show, and she said something very similar to that. And hearing you say it, it reminds me again, and I know I keep going in this direction, but it's very much like if you're going to start a new business, right, you can't go into it thinking that the business, the day you open up shop is going to be successful day one, right? And I think a lot of authors start out and it's almost like a hobby to some degree. Some people definitely start out as a business and they want to build it succinctly and go into it with that mindset. But there are others who, like you, kind of write a book and let's see what happens with this. Then you kind of, oh, wow, this is actually working out. Now I actually have to think about being a business owner and thinking about all these other things. But I think it's all rooted in that fact that regardless of which direction you take, whether you go intentionally to create this business or you start out as a hobbyist trying to write and see what happens kind of thing, You have to keep that long game in mind because if you don't, listen, maybe the first one's not a hit. Sometimes it'll take people to see three, four, five pieces of your writing before they hop on board. And if they only see one, they may say, well, what happens if I really like this author? I have nothing else to read. But now they have five. Let me go take a look because now I could go backwards and get some other work. So I think that's a great piece of advice, whether you're an author or starting a business. I think you always have to keep that long game in mind and you want to have that longevity to be able to adjust over time. I think that's a great piece of advice. Two things you just said. One, like you said, most businesses do not turn a profit. It's like for three years. Like if you were starting a new business, I mean, you would hope that you would have some runway to carry you until you become profitable. And the authors the same way. They expect like right out the gate to hit success or to at least be profitable. And that's not realistic. It doesn't mean it can't happen or it won't happen, but it's not realistic. And it took me a long time to think of my writing as a business. And if I had thought of it that way earlier, would have made so much more money. 
And it's kind of, you want to marry your creative and your business side. You can still have that creative side, but you need to always be listening kind of to that business head because you're about to put a lot of time and effort into something. You want to make sure that it's going to pay off or it's at least moving you in a successful direction. And there is an author, Stephanie Green or Stephanie Holmes. I get, she writes under both pen names, but she's a blind author and I interviewed her and she has a fantastic story. She wanted to be an archaeologist and could not get a job as an archaeologist due to her visual impairment and ended up publishing books. But she was stuck at the three to $4,000 a month earnings. She just couldn't get past three to $4,000 a month. Didn't matter. She was doing all of the things. And her 21st book, I believe, that book went nuts. And she was a six-figure author from then on, didn't look back. But it was how easily could she have given up on book 18 or 19, right? Like, I mean, she gave it a good run, right? Like she, 18, 19 books, that's a lot of books. She tried. She was there four or five years. She worked really hard. But you just never know. You never know when you might find that magic. And for her, it was just hitting the right genre when it got hot. And then she stayed in that lane and wrote it. So, And the good news is, I mean, she was making three or $4,000 a month. Maybe not great if you're working full-time, per se. But being an author also offers you the ability, obviously, your commodity is time. But if you have a full-time job or even a half-time job, you could still do the writing. It may take you longer to put out that book. But you can have a little bit of that cushion and safety net if you need or want to until you get to that point. So there's a lot of great options with being a writer, I think, at least, and at least from the writers that we've spoken to over the years, that's been the case. So what prompted you, and I think I might know the answer to this after the last couple of things we've spoken about, what prompted you to provide free resources for other authors? Because that's something you're proactively giving back to that author community. What prompted you to do that? That was part of my background, right? Like being lost and kind of alone in this business for so long. Which is what I thought you might say, how you didn't have those resources. So it seemed like a natural fit. It was a natural fit. Yeah. Also, I didn't have community and I didn't have resources now. And it was before really online learning had taken off. So now there's a lot of people doing what I do. There's a lot of people that have resources for authors. But that was really where it was born. And it's also, I really love to do it. I love creating content. I love working with authors. I love hearing from authors. I love the author community. So it gives back to me as much as I ever give to it. Because you can get burnout writing. And so this is kind of my balancing act. I have that solo alone in my office activity. And then I kind of come back into the real world. And I'm still in an environment where I'm learning things that will help in that solo activity, but I can do it with other authors. So I think we talk a lot on here about mentors and mentees and how the fact that being a mentor, when I'm mentoring somebody or assisting somebody, typically I get just as much from that relationship as they get from me, I get from them. And that's when you know things are working right, because if one of you is giving too much and or giving a lot and the other's not getting a lot, it's probably not a fit to begin with. But in the right situations, it really benefits both both parties significantly. So that's great stuff. So let's talk about InkersCon. Can you tell our listeners a little about what InkersCon is and how it came to be? Absolutely. InkersCon is an annual conference. We do a small event each winter, but we do our big event in the summer. And it's a conference for fiction authors focused on self-published authors. I had my courses for authors 
and I had exhausted everything I knew. So there's everything I know, but I want to share everything that everybody else knows. And I also, as an author, want to learn from the best. And it was very important to me that I pull experts, not just from the writing world, but also from the outside world, right? So if I want to learn about TikTok ads, I don't want to just go in the author community. I want to find a TikTok ads expert from any industry and bring them in or learn kind of bring some of the business principles from other industries into the author world. So that was really where InkersCon was born. And from the very beginning, we launched in 2019. And I wanted to have an in-person and an online con. And that really set us up when COVID came around because we were already doing virtual conferences. So we have our big live event in Dallas and we record everything with a team of videographers and then package it for our digital audience. And then we launch it to the digital audience, which our digital audience is 10 times more than our live audience. And they're from around the world. And that's a much, I mean, I've been very blessed in that it's a very active and involved online conference because a lot of online conferences, especially ones that were born out of COVID and out of necessity are very stale. They post content and people watch it or they don't watch it and that's it. But we try to mimic as many in-person activities as part of the digital conference. And it's been a huge success. Amazing. It sounds like a big think tank, right? Yeah. A big think <laughs> tank of all the people surrounding. We've been involved in some of those in the past talking about the financial and non-financial aspects. Some of the things we talked about today, right? Starting out, maybe you doing it part-time and creating and, and putting together an emergency fund if you're going to go in this direction. So you have that freedom and flexibility and you don't have to worry about getting sales out of the gate. So it's great that you bring all of these thoughts leaders together. And it's a great opportunity for those that are new to the profession, middle of the way, and those who are even seasoned and veterans, because I'm sure everybody takes a lot away from it. So I'm glad to hear it's been such a success because we've followed it over the last couple of years. So congratulations for that. Can you share with us the path that you took for your book, Hollywood Dirt? I know it was one of the first movies made by Passion Flicks. Can you walk our listeners through that? So if I'm an author and I want to think about having a work of mine actually turned into a movie at some point, how did that work for you? I love that story. I'm happy to share it. So Hollywood Dirt was a book I self-published. I don't even know when. I want to say 2015, maybe. It's what we call an enemies to lovers story set in the South. And it's set in the small town of Quincy, which is outside of Tallahassee. It was a town I was very familiar with. So Quincy is a unique town and at one time had the highest per capita number of millionaires in the country. And they were all Coca-Cola millionaires. It was a bunch of farmers that all invested $2,000 back in the day in Coca-Cola stock. And it ended up becoming like $100 million each or something crazy. So there was this great town and this great setting. And it's a great story. And it went on to become multiple New York Times bestseller as a self-published book, and it was a reader favorite, but I wasn't getting any Hollywood interest. And we did pitch it. So I have a film agent. If you are an author and you're interested in your book becoming a movie, which of course we all are, the first step is typically to get a film agent. That is your biggest opportunity, either get a manager or a film agent. And so I had a film agent. I had books that had been optioned by big studios and had scripts written in the past. And Hollywood is really great about getting a certain way down the road and then it all falls apart inevitably at the end. So we tried with Hollywood Dirt. I knew it was going to be like a lifetime movie type thing probably. But the one thing I heard is Hollywood hates movies about Hollywood. And you don't see a lot of 
movies that do have actors. I mean, they all have actors in them, but you don't see a lot of movies about Hollywood, except for the rare occasion. So I had pretty much written Hollywood Dirt off on that. And then one day I got an email from a group of women. It ended up being Elon Musk's sister, Tosca. Mm -hmm. and her two business partners, Gina and Joni. And they were starting this new studio, Passion Flicks. And I said, sure. They were like, oh, we're interested in Hollywood Dirt. I said, sure, let's set up a call. And they pitched the idea of this studio, which was going to be focused on making the movie exactly like the book. And the author is going to be 100% involved, which the other thing you'll learn if you're an author going into Hollywood is that Hollywood is not interested in us as authors at all. It's very much like we're going to take your book and we don't ever want to see you again. (laughs) (laughs) And they don't want to hear from us. They don't want to see us. It is their baby and they're going to run with it. And I was always fine with that. I wasn't someone that cared what my book was after that point. So they had the opposite approach because Joni was a screenwriter in Hollywood and she knew how horrible screenwriters were treated the same way. So I said, sure. So I sold them the rights and I really thought nothing would ever happen of it. And then they sent me the script and I read it and I made some changes and I thought nothing was going to happen. And they sent me audition tapes. And when they said they were going to keep me involved in every part of it, they kept me involved in every step of it. I am incredibly grateful to them for that because part of what I wanted to do is learn. I really wanted to learn and understand as much about the business as I could. But it wasn't until I was standing on set on the first day of filming, we were in an old Dunkin' Donuts factory that had been repurposed to a movie set. It was freezing cold. It was in February and it was like 26 degrees and we couldn't turn the heat on in the factory because they had these big heaters that were too loud for them to record. So we're all like huddled around in parkas and my poor little main character is in a sundress because it's supposed to be summertime in Georgia. And that was really when I was like, oh my gosh, this is actually happening. And that was the one moment I let myself believe that it really was going to happen because I was so guarded against being let down by Hollywood. But it was a great experience. And Hollywood Dirt Now is available. You can watch it on Amazon Prime. I mean, you can rent it or you can watch it through the Passion Flix app. And they've gone on. I think I have to imagine they filmed 10 or 15 movies at this point in time. But we were the first. Hollywood Dirt was the first. And it was an incredible experience. So I was, I believe I was a founding member of Passion <laughs> Flix. Like, well, I did one of their subscriptions yeah. at the beginning when they were trying to raise capital. And yeah, you notice. have been so, around. Yeah. Yeah. So I heard about them right around that same time when they first launch. And it's great to see the success that they're having today. So it's amazing. So listen, Alessandra, we end every show by asking each of our guests the same question. I'm very curious to hear this, and I'll tell you why afterwards. And that question is, because this is the Midland Money Mindset, what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? Well, I don't know how much success it will bring me, but I can answer it very easily, which is, I have two mama hens that have made their home in my front yard and they each have a half dozen babies. And I sat on the sidewalk this morning and fed them watermelon and grapes and little bits of corn. And that was the perfect start to my day. I was watching them. So that put me in the right mindset. And I hope that it brings me success. I think talking to you, you will help bring me, get me in the right mindset and bring me success. Listen, I was hoping, I wasn't sure if you'd say this or you had time for this today, but I am jealous of the fact that you're in Key West and you have the ability to fish like on a regular basis in Key West. Because I think a couple of weeks ago, actually, it's probably a couple of months ago at this point, I went fishing off of Marco Island 
And I think I came back and there were pictures of you. You were fishing in Key West that same day and you caught some really, really healthy fish like we did in right off Marco Island. So I'm jealous that that's in your backyard every single day because that might be my office if I was there. I might be uh, taking up shop on the boat if it wasn't for the fact that there's really not great internet out there, but it's excellent. And I see you enjoy fishing, right? We do. Yeah, we love fishing. It's actually a blessing, I think, that we don't get good internet on the boat because I would be working, I think, too much. And I won't date us by saying what time of year it is, but we're lobstering pretty soon. So right now, actually, my family's out on the boat scouting out spots and we're getting ready for mini lobster season and lobster season. So I'm very excited. But yeah, it's a fantastic place to live. And it's one of the rare places where you say I'm an author. And normally people are like really interested And here they're like, oh, yeah, I'm an author. And so is that lady. (laughs) Everybody's an author, a musician or an artist. So it's a great community. I took a trip out off Marco Island and we're pulling out. We ended up going out about 35 miles offshore. And the captain, like 10 or 15 minutes in, looks at all of us and goes to myself and the other folks that I had brought out with me. He said, make any last minute phone calls, any text messages, because you got about 10 minutes and then nothing. And I was like, really? I was like, that's great. So we had a great day fishing. The only bad thing is when you're coming back in at the end of the day and then you reconnect and your phone just starts blowing up on the way in, you're like, oh man, it's over. But while you're out there, it's fantastic. Yeah. We got a lot of joy out of that. So it's been a pleasure having you on the show, Alessandra. And if people want to find out more, learn more about you and your works, we'll have all your information in the show notes. What's the easiest and best place for them to go to find more about you? I would say my website. So for authors, it's alessandratoryinc.com. And for readers, it's just alessandratory.com. But that's the best place. Social media is a zoo. And what I'm trying to stay away from, that's my kind of New Year's resolution is to be less on social. But yeah, the website's the best place. Well, please post the fishing pictures. I love seeing those. But it's been a pleasure having you on, Alessandra. I enjoyed the conversation and please make it a great day. Thank you so much. You too. I want to thank Alessandra Tory for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Alessandra has found great success as an author and continues to expand her writing. In addition to her own success, she is committed to helping authors everywhere refine their craft and have success too. Alessandra clearly understands the abundance mindset. Alessandra can be found across all social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find her and the resources she has for other authors can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. 
No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.